Should leaders and organizations take a stand on current events or politics or causes? It's a tough question, one we don't answer in this episode. But hopefully, we'll give you a place to begin thinking about how you might approach it in your work. This is Coaching for Leaders, Episode 618. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing Human Potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up and entering the organizational world in my first jobs, I always received the advice, don't talk about politics or religion in the workplace. And that advice has changed a bit over the years. Uh, More and more organizations have chosen to jump into what's happening in current events and taking on political issues. And more and more leaders find themselves grappling with What do I say or not say? And how do I connect the organization to that or not? Today, I'm glad to welcome uh, an expert who just has such a unique vantage point of helping us to think about how we approach this in our own leadership. I'm so pleased to introduce Adi Ignatius. He is the editor-in-chief of the Harvard Business Review Group, where he oversees the editorial activities of HBR, HBR HBR.org, and HBR's book publishing unit. Prior to joining HBR in 2009, he was the number two editor at Time. He is the editor also of two books, President Obama, The Path to the White House, and Prisoner of the State, The Secret Diaries of Premier Zhao Jiang. Both made the New York Times bestseller list. Adi lived and worked for nearly 20 years overseas. He was editor of Times Asian Edition and earlier served as Beijing bureau chief and Moscow bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal. He is also host of the HBR channel. It is the 100th anniversary of Harvard Business Review. Adi, what a accomplishment for HBR. Congratulations. Welcome. Yeah, well, Dave, look, it's really great to be on your show. And yeah, I mean, to be honest, we're we're proud of 100 years. You know, as as I've said before, most of the companies we write about don't live nearly as long. So for us to have survived and 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 thrived and reinvented ourselves and still be around after a century, we are we are very proud of that. I'm an HBR subscriber. Uh, our audience knows who reads our weekly guide that I pass along more HBR articles than any other publication. And I think the real achievement for HBR is not just that HBR is still here after 100 years. We all know organizations that have been around for 100 years, but they're not quite as culturally relevant as they were. HBR is as relevant and as practical as ever. In fact, the the challenge I have is getting through all the content that comes out of HBR because there's so much that I grab onto every single week. So thanks to you and your whole team for the continued work and the consistency you've done for so many years. Yeah, you're welcome. Sorry for sounds like ruining your weekends. <laughs> it's a good problem to have. Uh, speaking of 100 years, a lot's changed in the last century, right? And one of the things that has absolutely changed, particularly in recent years, is what I mentioned in the intro, the advice, don't talk about religion and politics, right? There are places in the world where that's still the case. China, for example, one for sure. But that is no longer, I think, the default advice. And silence now sends a message, doesn't it? 
Yeah, it does. And I, I mean, you're really raising this, I think, in the context of of CEOs who are who represent companies and and are feeling pressure from their from their customers, from their stakeholders, from their employees, most of all, to speak up on social and political issues. I mean, think back at a decade or so ago, nobody wanted to do that. Why would a why would a CEO want to do that and and risk alienating half of their audience? But I think it is, as you say, it's it's the silence problem. So if you say nothing, they're now organized individuals on social media and especially on Twitter who will interpret your silence and maybe in ways that are very negative for you and for your company. So if that's the case, you, you might as well figure out what your message is and get ahead of that that response and 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 try to speak up when it seems so vital to your company or to your own values that that silence isn't isn't a good option. I'm curious how you approach this. I find this really hard as someone who has a visible presence online and I think a lot of leaders are in the situation where they are running a large team, a large organization, CEOs in particular. It's a really difficult thing to conceptualize and then to decide what you want to do because on one hand you don't want to be silent and to let people come to their own conclusions. I've, for years, told people like, you know, you know, if you're if you're not telling the story, other people are going to tell the story for you. At the same time, on the other side, there's the well. If I say something, am I going to alienate my customers, my employees, who may or may not share the same values that I do personally, or maybe the organization has? That's a really hard road to walk, isn't it? Yeah, it's a hard. It, it, it is. And look, in an ideal world. It's not CEOs of companies who try to move the needle on on social and political issues that that you know our our, our government our elected officials do that. I, I think part of the reason that that people look to CEOs is you know in a lot of countries and I think I would add the U.S. we don't have a a high highly functional government at least at the national level and you know everything you've talked about has alluded to the, the kind of hyper politicization hyper-partisan nature of things now that I think has helped create an opportunity where people are looking to, you know, can can companies affect the change that that they want? And this is tricky because the change you want, you support CEOs who, who who advocate the change you want. And if they're talking about something you don't want, well, suddenly you don't support even the the notion of, of CEO activism. So it's, look, I, I'm an idealist. You know, I, I'd like to see intractable problems be solved or people to attempt to solve them. And, you know, governments will break your heart and, and NGOs will break your heart because there's only, only so much they can do. So on the one hand, I'd like the idea of CEOs saying, all right, so this ecosystem that is my company, I can I can pursue certain ideals. We can, we can adapt certain policies, whether it's on diversity or sustainability, inclusion, what have you. And in this ecosystem that is my company, our company, we could try to live to those values. And maybe that's how you change the world. One, one kind of pocket, one ecosystem, one company at a time. You know, the, the, it gets more complicated, though, when we're asking our, our executives, our CEOs to weigh in on social issues and, and to, to stand up, to boycott, to, uh, you know, to pressure local governments to rescind votes that they make, you know, whatever it is, that's tricky. And that, you know, ideally, that's not, business shouldn't be there. But you can understand why it's there. And it's there, again, because of the the super partisan nature of things. And I would say the dysfunctionality of, of government in general these days. Yeah. And there's been, um, there's been a really 
interesting progression of this in recent years. And there was this, I think, the George Floyd murder certainly catapulted a lot of this conversation into the executive suite in an immediate and very present way. And then there's been sort of another phase of this now as time has gone on. What are you, what are you seeing that leaders are struggling with or maybe dealing with now and thinking about this that maybe was different than two or three years ago? I think in some ways it may be issue fatigue. Look, I, you know, the, the one of the best critiques I've seen of all of this CEO activism is Peter Goodman, uh, New York Times, did a book called Davos Man. And he acknowledged that there are these, I don't know, you know, very socially active CEOs. Mark Benioff of Salesforce comes to mind, Howard Schultz at Starbucks, you know, many others who have basically said government is dysfunctional. We're going to step up and try to make positive change. That's all fine. Uh, you know, and you can then see if they're walking the walk and in, in addition to talking the talk. But what, what Peter pointed out and others have pointed out as well is yeah, government's dysfunctional, but part of the reason it's dysfunctional, surely, is that corporations, including Salesforce and the others I mentioned, hire lobbyists to avoid paying taxes. Now, you know, if you're somebody who believes the best government is zero government, okay, fine. But if you're like me and you believe in public-private partnership and the government can, in certain cases, be a force for good – then if you starve government of funds, yeah, sure, you'll get the dysfunctionality that allows CEOs to step up and say, I can solve that problem. So, you know, I think there, I think there are some inconsistencies and 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 some problems that that need to be addressed beyond just whether a CEO is standing up on, on this issue or that issue. But but it, you know, in response to your question, I do think there's some fatigue. If you, you know, after George George Floyd's murder, everybody, I think. Practically everybody felt the need to stand up to show their employees that they care and that they're doing the right thing and saying the right thing. I think there's far less response, you know, after the murder of Nichols in in Memphis to see that. And and I just think a it, there's a little bit of, of fatigue and there's been a bit of a backlash from the sort of so-called anti-woke crowd that is making CEOs think twice about making public statements on these social and political issues. You have such a unique vantage point as editor-in-chief of HBR, and you talk to leaders across all industries and, of course, the folks who are publishing in HBR. When this issue comes up today, what do you hear leaders struggling with? So, you know, this sounds like I'm, I'm being a jerk, but anyway, when I was in Davos recently, you know, I, I, was, I was interested in taking the polls. I mean, look, Davos... You know, the annual, the World Economic Forum Summit in Switzerland is is all about leaders who think about more than just share price. All right. So the, the whole concept of a, a multi-stakeholder capitalism instead of just a shareholder capitalism is kind of the foundation of that. So, you know, I I would say that in that crowd, they are still basically singing the same tune that you know that that look that you had you had fifty years of of Milton Friedman of of shareholder first that we're still defining the next era, but that the next era is is happening that 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 there's significant significant change is happening, and it's driven in part by uh, a desire to get it right in terms of climate, and that you need to think about stakeholders broadly, and again your community and your your employers and your customers and you know that whole that whole network out there so. 
you know, I think at that level, there's a, a, a continuing commitment and a doubling down on this. I think, you know, in the real world and in the U.S., it, it could be problematic. I mean, if you think about, let's think about ESG, environmental social governance, the backlash against ESG. I mean, we've seen Larry Fink at BlackRock, you know, the the, the right is frustrated with him because, uh, you know, so-called woke approaches to investment or 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 investment priorities and, and and statements, you know, in favor of decreasing carbon use, for example. And then the left is like, wait a minute, you know, the, the BlackRock isn't doing nearly enough. So it's tough. It's tough to get beaten up. And I think I think that is causing some CEOs to try to try to sort of lower their lower their head. I mean, you know, one of the phrases, so companies used to get accused of greenwashing, talking about environmental, you know, climate progress or environment, you know, positive environmental that, that maybe weren't really there, uh, that now the move is sort of green hushing. You do it, but you don't talk about it because now it used to be talking about it was, was maybe more valuable than doing it. And now it's sort of the opposite. Do it if you believe in it, but maybe don't talk about it so much. Yeah. You know, there's there's so much nuance in this, isn't there? Like depending on organization, industry, issue, nuance that I find hard, like on a regular basis too. And, you know, one of the things that's certainly come up in the news in the last year or two that I think a lot of organizations have thought about differently is the situation in Russia and Ukraine. And like, how are we going to respond to it? And a lot of organizations have responded to that in some way. You, of course, have lived there and know so much about the culture. And I'm I'm curious, like, as you've seen that play out over the last year or two, where do you see that that has, like, been helpful for organizations, for industry? And and where, if at all, you you look at things and say, hmm, yeah, maybe not so much? Uh, I thought Russia, I think Russia has been a fascinating example of of how the global business community has responded. And I'll, I'll, I'll give the case of, of Harvard Business Review. I mean, we, we have a partner in Russia, you know, licensing partner who, who, who does our Russian language edition, who is somebody who, you know, is from, from Dagestan, who uh, we don't talk politics, but is, is probably against Putin and, and against Putin's war. But the logic of sanctions are, are sort of blunt and unnuanced. So we just had to conclude that it was impossible for us to continue to do business in Russia after the invasion of Ukraine. And, you know, even small little HBR, we were, we were getting letters from subscribers saying, you know, how can you continue to be in Russia and and the profits are are going to the Russian government and feeding this war effort? You can't be there. And, you know, that that was so we felt even though our partner, you know, was hardly complicit in all this, it's just, as, as I said, there's a blunt logic to sanctions. So we had to pull out. So, you know, many, 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 I don't know if it's most. American companies came to the same conclusion. Interesting on this one, a lot of that was driven by, you must know Jeff Sonnenfeld of of Yale, who founded the Chief Executive Leadership Institute. And kind of early on, he started publishing a list of which companies had pulled out of, of Russia after the invasion. And I'm certain that it led to more and more companies making that decision. Partly because they didn't want to be, you know, shamed by by not being on a list that was being interpreted as a as a positive thing, and two, I think it gave them cover to to for for CEOs to go to their 
their boards or something and say, you know, look at this public list of these prominent U.S. companies that have decided, despite the hit to their bottom line, that they're they're going to pull out of Russia. So it's, it was interesting to see, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily organized to achieve those results, but it but it did. So, you know, I think there are still issues where business is, is close to fully unified and, you know, can make powerful statements. Now, d- does it change things? You know, do, do these boycotts, do these statements, even pulling out of Russia, do they change things? I think that, I mean, that's a whole other topic we can we can explore because it's, you know, it's hard to know, really. Yeah, indeed. And, you know, you said something there a moment ago, which uh, I'd love to pull the thread on a bit. You know, it, it, we don't we don't talk politics like with HBR. And I, I'm kind of curious, like, you know, maybe specifically with Russia, but just more broadly, this must come up where, and I think that folks who read HBR probably know this, but those who don't, you and your staff, Adi, are generally not the ones writing in HBR. It is you're reaching out to the experts, practitioners, professors, researchers, uh, faculty all over the world who are are bringing their expertise. You must have submissions that come in from people who on both sides of either the political or faith or whatever that are very one-sided. How do you and your team as an organization handle that and think about that in the context of navigating some of the current events in politics? Yeah, that's a great question. It 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 really started to come out a lot after 2016 in the election of Trump, which was, you know, it either either it caused or or was a, a a symptom of the of the politicization and 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 hyperpartisan nature of of things. So, you know, there were people in our world who wanted to write pieces saying, you know, that, that had a tone of like, well, everyone who might be reading this knows that Donald Trump is a joke. You know, that was sort of the tone and. And, you know, I had to to respond and really make sure our, our editors were all on board to say, we're not going to publish that. You can, you can criticize President Trump's policy and say why this is a better approach. But the sort of, well, everyone in our world knows that this guy is wrong. Like, that's not OK. And that and that's only contributing to the kind of, you know, miscom- miscommunication that's happening. We at the same time, though, and I, I think it was when the Trump administration pulled out of Paris, Paris climate talks that we we had to think about, well, I mean, as you say, we don't have writers as much as editors and our pages don't have a point of view the way certain publications do. And I always cite The Economist. You just know their their point of view on each and every page. We're more eclectic. But we did decide that certain research based values that are shown to work for companies in terms of long-term success, that we are quite proud to to plant the flag and say that we believe in them. And, and to me, those would be diversity in its various forms, diversity, equity, inclusion, sustainability, you know, making progress on climate, long-term thinking as opposed to quarterly thinking, you know, fact-based decision-making. I mean, to me, those are sort of universal values, but they all became controversial. They've all become controversial in recent years. So in that sense, we're comfortable ascribing to certain bedrock values, again, that research has proven are are beneficial for long-term success. So that's a change for us. And some might call that political, and and I think it's it's a little bit different, but not everyone, I, I know, not everybody would would agree with that list. Yeah, and I was thinking as you were saying that, and I was just thinking 
what's the distinction, right? Like, what's the distinction between what you just said and also like, okay, something happens in the news today and we're going to put out a statement or not. And the the word that is coming up for me is that it's coming back to values, like the consistency, I mean, of the brand, 100 years, right? Diversity, as you mentioned, sustainability, like those things are consistent on HBR and have been for a long time, long before all the things that are happening in the news today. And that the decision to be a little more forward there is really in a line with those consistent values. Whereas I say or don't say something about what's happening in the news today that may not really, may not map to one of those values that I may not say something. I, I don't know. Am I am I reading too much into something that maybe isn't there? But I, that's just what I was hearing. Yeah, I think values matter a lot. I think culture matters a lot. I think CEOs and their teams set the tone. And I think, look, we've seen people want to work for companies who whose values track to their own. You know, we know that. That's not just rhetoric. You know, and, and from time to time, customers want to buy from companies that that share their values too. So I, I think the value thing is 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 really important. And I think it's I I don't have a problem with with companies sort of stating their values when they're 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 big overarching things like this. I mean, you know, so so Boston Consulting Group, BCG Henderson Institute tried to lay out ground rules for, you know, when CEOs should speak up and when they should. It's hard to do that, but yeah. they had sort of several points. And the first point was commit to the democratic rule of law and do so consistently. You know, that there there's certain things that you can't go wrong on a point like that. And, you know, if people have a problem with that, well, that's fine. You know, you, you can proudly hold your head high and say you are committed to the democratic rule of law. So I think, I think, you know, then beyond that, you have to think, well, I can't jump into every debate, every social, I just can't. So think about the ones that really track to, to who your company is, what it does, how it works with suppliers, you know, what your, what your employees Commitment, deep commitment, and sense of you know, and and then you pick and choose. And there, there, there are times when you're gonna, times when you're gonna speak out, and times when you just can't because you just can't be in the in the political fray every time. Yeah, and I forget what it was that came up in the news a few months ago, but there was a whole conversation online. I don't remember if it was Twitter or somewhere else, but like, well, CEOs, leaders trying to determine like what sort of crosses the bar of something that I we need to say something about as an organization or I need to say something about as leader and what doesn't quite rise to that level. And as you would imagine, there was criticisms on both sides, right? Like the critical of the people who had made the decision that whatever the thing was in the news didn't quite cross the bar. And then others who were like, well, you know, saying too much. And that's really, really hard because that like as someone who cares about, I mean, you and I care a lot about the things that we've talked about, a lot of these values. On one hand, there's like a part of me like, wow, I'd love to speak about everything. But you also know, like logically as a human being, just like a leader who has 21 priorities on this quarter's, <laughs> you know, like strategy plan, like what, as soon as you start commenting on everything and then everything is important, all of a sudden nothing's important and it's just noise. And you're not saying something that's really meaningful that people notice. And the hard part is knowing where that line is. And, and, you know, for us as a media organization, you know, I don't want to be predictable. You know, I don't want people to say, oh yeah, you know, they're, they have a whatever agenda, a liberal agenda or, you know, a conservative, you know, any particular agenda. I would like 
to have the ability to surprise people with what we publish. You know, there, there are times when we will write about, I don't know, let's say the, the softer issues or, or, or we'll do something on, you know, stakeholder capitalism, whatever. And somebody will write, even HBR thinks that you should think beyond sort of shareholder returns. Now, I think we've sort of thought that for a while, and it's I'm almost insulted that people would phrase it that way. And yet I realize you have power in that. You know, if 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 people think that we as an institution are, let's say, the Bible for capitalism, which we're not, and we don't set out to be, but if people have that kind of view, and then we're talking about, well, how do we how do we how do we fix capitalism? How do we fix, you know, that that gives us a certain amount of power. So I, I just I never want to be predictable in terms of 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 what we publish and what we say. I was watching another interview you did a while back, and I'm not sure this is an exact quote, so correct me if I'm wrong, but you said something like, everyone's got a hot take right now, and I'm really kind of tired of everyone's certainty on everything. <laughs> and I, and I, by the way, I share that view. And I'm, I'm wondering how you think about that in the context of just this and certainty and like how you think about certainty as a leader and how you communicate and represent what's going on in the world. So I feel like I, I change my mind all the time. And I sometimes wonder, does that make me a, a weak person, a bad parent, a, a bad editor? But I, I, it's just, it is a, it's a, it's a fact about myself. I mean, look, I mean, look, we all, I, I'm not pretending that I don't have my biases and, and, you know, my, my go-to views, but I envy people who have this sort of absolute certainty about whatever, about how the political system should work or how the economy should be led. I, I feel like I'm learning constantly. And I so I'm I, you know, I'm not I'm not comfortable with with the sort of certainty that some people have. And that, as you say, media sort of demands, you know, n- nobody, you know, radio guys have to have a hot take, even if it is ridiculous, because that's how they get talked about. And that's that's how you know, that's how they get listeners. So. Yeah, so I, I, whatever my quote was, yeah, pick up on it. It's, it's. Uh, I do believe that we have an excess of certainty in this world, and that it's not, it's not serving discourse very well. And this topic, I, I sort of have the same thought, especially on this topic. I feel like I could be easily swayed either direction, depending on what happens in the world and how people think about this, as far as like activism and what leaders should say or not. I find that I've gone back and forth on this just in the last few years, and I find it really hard, like a really hard thing to read culturally when to say something, when not. I, as a brand, have generally, as a you know, as coaching for leaders, have generally don't wait into current events and politics and all of that. But I could have my mind changed on that over time because the world's changing a lot. Well, and then there's a whole other question that I was sort of alluding to before, which is, so does this stuff work or, or rather does speaking up hurt? In other words, can we measure the results? If a company takes a stand and says, all right, we're not going to be in North Carolina because of a policy that they've adopted or, you know, and it's hard to, it's hard to measure these things. You know, Catalyst did a study last year, maybe 2021, that concluded that it doesn't seem to have hurt, you know, the CEOs who have taken a clear stand on issues that they haven't seen a drop in sales in the cases they looked at. And in fact, if anything, customers were more likely to, you know, customers who I guess supported their politics or ignored the, the politics to play were more likely to buy their company's products. So we don't have good research on this. And, you know, I wouldn't advocate that people 
wade into these issues because they think it might improve their bottom line. But you got to think about that. You got to think about what the potential risk is. And then I guess what the potential upside is. And, you know, some of the early research says it doesn't hurt you to do that. It can actually help you. Again, the issue has to, it has to make sense with, with, with who you are and with the values of the CEO and the values of the employees. So much of this comes back to personal leadership, right? And then, you know, what does the organization stand for and what are the values that are there already? Uh, Adi, you, you mentioned a moment ago, you, you, you've changed your mind on a lot of things. Uh, I find myself often asking guest experts what they've changed their minds on just because I think that's part of leadership is learning, growing, changing our minds. As you think about that in the context of the last couple of years, what's something you've changed your mind on? Well, there are a couple that come to mind that don't endear me to my liberal friends, but you know, so be it. So one, uh, this might seem out of the blue, but is the flat tax. So I, you know, the flat tax has problems. It's, you know, it's not progressive. I get it. There are problems with it. But I lived in Hong Kong and Hong Kong had a simple flat tax. There was no tax evasion. It basically put Congress out of, or the equivalent of Congress legislature, you know, almost out of work because they weren't toying with tax receipts and what do you do with all this tax dollars? It was just, a, it was a flat rate. Everybody paid it. The tax form was one page. There's something kind of wonderful about that. So that is something that I thought I was against. And then I kind of lived with it and thought, all right, that's not bad. You know, philanthropic giving is strong in Hong Kong. You know, that that still happens even without tax incentives. Another one is Joe Manchin. <laughs> you know, if you read the New York Times, you might think Joe Manchin is just sort of a, a obstinate egotist who, you know, is making a mess of things. You know, I, I saw him in action recently and realized you know, he's one, of, he's one of the smartest guys we have in Washington. And, you know, he's got this sort of independent streak that can be extremely frustrating to both sides. But, you know, the guy pretty much wrote the Inflation Redu- Reduction Act, which, you know, no one's 100% happy with it, but it's a pretty interesting piece of democratic legislation. So I had viewed him as a as a, a sort of an obstacle to progress. And I have, a, I have a new take on him, having sort of seen him in person and realizing that he's a Pretty thoughtful guy. Adi Ignatius is the editor in chief of the Harvard Business Review. Adi, thank you so much for your perspective and your thoughts. So appreciated. Thanks, Dave. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. At the end of conversations, you often hear me ask guests, What have you changed your mind on? And this is a place where many leaders have been changing their minds and still are. There's a lot of uncertainty in my own thinking, as you heard in this conversation, and also my invitation for myself and all of us is to be willing to change our minds. What we may have been taught traditionally on how we handle these things or not in our organizations, to have the openness and the willingness to look at where we are and perhaps change our minds just a bit several related episodes that I think might help in that regard as well. One of them I'd recommend is episode 223, Start With Why. Simon Sinek was my guest on that episode, talking about his book of the same name. No one is better than Simon on the question of why. Why does your organization exist? Why the key big picture importance behind it and the purpose behind it? In that conversation, Simon talks about the why, how you begin to find it and explore it. And of course, once you know the why, then it becomes a lot clearer the answer to the questions on politics and current events and how you or your organization handles that. Not easy, but clear. 
episode 223 for more there. I'd also recommend episode 581, Handling a Difficult Stakeholder. Nick Timros was my guest on that episode, chief economics correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Nick wrote a fascinating book looking at how the Fed responded during the pandemic here in the States. And in particular, looked at Fed Chairman Jay Powell and how he handled leadership at the time and working with some very difficult stakeholders and some principles we can all learn from that. Episode 581 for details there. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 594, speaking of difficult situations, conversations about race are some of the most difficult conversations we all have. Kwame Christian was my guest on that episode. We talked about how to begin difficult conversations about race. Kwame has written an entire book on the topic, and in that conversation, we talk specifically about how to start those conversations, especially the first 20, 30 seconds when you do need to bring up a difficult subject and race is involved. How do you begin that conversation and to do it in a way that honors the other party and is professional? Episode 594 for details there. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. One of the topic areas inside the website and the episode library is difficult situations. If you're running into some difficult situations right now, my heart goes out to you and the empathy is there. And also, we're all charged with how do we as leaders help to move forward, help to help our organizations, ourselves, the people we're serving to move forward through those difficult situations. It's a starting point for you inside the website, as are several other topics in there. All of those you can access with your free membership. Just go over to coachingforleaders.com. You can search for those topics as well as many others, dozens and dozens of topics inside of the free membership. And maybe you're looking for a little bit more. Speaking of Kwame Christian, he was one of our expert guests who joined us for one of our monthly expert chat events. A subset of our members get together every month and sit down with one of our guest experts virtually. We have a Q&A and we make those recordings available through the benefits in Coaching for Leaders Plus. It's one of the many benefits available in Coaching for Leaders Plus. If you'd like details, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash plus and you'll find out more there. This Saturday, the Saturday cast returns. I'm glad to welcome Kathy Fiddler to the show. She's an alum of our academy and is going to be sitting down with me to have a conversation about finding leadership confidence through diverse perspectives. And then next Monday, I'm glad to welcome Sally Helgeson to the show. She's going to be talking with us on how to respond when you get triggered. Join me for those conversations in the next week and have a great week. Take care.